Once again, he makes that look so much easier. Good morning. I feel like we should begin with uh, that hello and welcome to the Marysville Church of Christ podcast. Um, today's sermon's a little bit different. Uh, usually, one of us is up here talking. However, as we're going to be touching on a subject that uh, both of us are very passionate about, we thought it would be good for both of us to kind of go back and forth in a little more informal of a setting and give a lesson on the birth of Jesus. See, in my uh, education and upbringing, what I emphasized on throughout college was the context of the first century world. More specifically, remembering that every time we go into the Bible, we're walking back in time into a different place with different people. The images, paintings, and pictures that are out throughout the Old Testament are, invitally to, are vitally important to understand if we're going to understand the context of the first century. Many of us believe that the New Testament, and the birth of Christ in particular, is like this divine moment in history where out of nowhere God in his infinite might broke on the scene for the first time and changed everything with the birth of Jesus. Whereas in actuality, the Bible paints a different picture. Imagine, if you will, a musical piece, a symphonic orchestral piece. At the very beginning, you hear a melody gently in the background, but as it goes, it gets louder and louder until eventually the melody is deafening, overwhelmingly loud, and you can't help but look at it. That is more accurate. Jesus' birth was thousands of years in the making, and not a new story that's beginning, but the climax to a story that's already running, a story that we find ourselves in. So... Today we're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus through this context of the story that was and the story that is. As we were sitting down this week to study this, as we do every week, we found ourselves continually on opposite sides of focus, two different directions that we wanted to go, as he just described. And, and so instead of trying to win me over to his thought or me win him over to my thought, which, by the way, I've long since given up, uh, we, we decided that showing both sides of this story is probably the best way to go about it. Bishop's going to be going from his area of greater expertise and study and looking at the Old Testament leading up to the birth of Christ. And I'm going to be limiting myself to chapters uh, 1 and 2 of Matthew, Luke chapter 2, as we give the New Testament version. Which, the by story. the way, we had to limit him to just two passages, because if we give him any more... I think everybody understood that without you saying it out loud. <laughs> you don't want me to have the whole range of the entire Old Testament, so it's probably best that we hold it down to this. Throughout our study this week, this line kept coming up in our conversation. We kept re reiterating to one another and remembering this idea that the Messiah that they were expecting was not the Messiah that they needed. And I would say, to add to that, the Messiah they were expecting is not the Messiah they needed, nor is it the Messiah that we need. And so we're going today to try to put both of those in context, the Messiah that they were watching for and the Messiah that is, and how both give us something to learn from on that. I'll let you introduce the first of our topics. Okay, so we kind of uh, went through, again, we have a lot to talk about. And so we went through the birth of Christ and took three, I guess we're going to call them thematic points. Three points of emphasis that we see throughout the Old Testament, the Messianic prophecies leading up to Jesus' birth. 
and three things that Jesus fulfilled upon his birth. I also want this to be known that this is not going to be your typical Jesus' birth sermon. We're not just going to be telling you the story and being like, yeah, there was an Old Testament passage that said this and this happened. Those are wonderful, but we've heard those. Instead, we're going to be focusing on three S's. And the first of our S's today is the word subjugate. Subjugate meaning to conquer, to rule, and to impose one's will. You just want me to go on ahead? Yeah, bring us through the Old Testament part. Okay. This idea is very important to the Jews because they started their origin in slavery in Egypt. Throughout Exodus, we see Exodus 1 begins with the prayer of the Israelites reaching the, vo- the heavens, uh, God in particular, and their cries motivating him to free his people. The story begins in slavery, which is really important because throughout their entire existence, they never really lost the chip on their shoulder of slaves. They always viewed themselves as the underdog. They always viewed themselves as the oppressed. And frequently, they were, often by their own cause. But this idea of subjugation, of rule, of power, of conquest, is what motivated Moses. It's why he wanted to raise his people up and get them out of Egypt and into a land they could subjugate, rule, and conquer. And then after him, we get Joshua, followed by the judges, followed by Saul and David, all of which very militaristic in their scope. Why? Because they never again wanted to find themselves tasting slavery. So they would rule instead. Militarism was a way of life for Judaism. And for the first several thousand years of their history, we see conflict being what they cared about the most. It's reasonable then to expect that when they talk about God and the coming Messiah, the promise of a savior of Israel, guess what? He reflected their bloodthirst. He was the divine warrior who was going to come and conquest the enemy. At the inauguration of the Torah, their law, there is this line that Moses calls the Lord, and I find it stunning and beautiful and haunting. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, Moses says, The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. The beginning of the prophecies of the Messiah, the warrior king. Throughout the prophets, we see a king like David who will come back to Israel and right the ship of their wrongs. Israel was small. Israel was insignificant. Israel had no finances, no money, no no presence on the global scale. And the Messiah was going to come and change all of that through his sword. Ah. But that's not exactly what, well, as we'll see, what happened. They wanted a Messiah who could be a savior. Someone who, like this, the Lord will go forth like a warrior and arouse the zeal of fellow soldiers. He will utter a shout and he will raise war cries and will save Israel from her enemies. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13. They needed the Messiah to be a savior. They needed the Messiah to be, well, Messiah, king. They called him king over and over For the portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all, the king of Israel, reigns. And Yahweh of armies is his name. Jeremiah 10, 16. They needed a savior. They needed a Messiah king. And they needed a Lord. Someone who could change the course of history for them forever. And so they expected the Messiah to come. In the bloodthirsty armament of David, with the sword wielding the blood of his enemies, splattered upon it in order to reconquer and take over Israel, subjugate the world to it, and rule supreme. But that's not exactly what we got. Yeah, what they expected wasn't what they received. 
what they, what they expected was this militaristic national war hero who would come and overthrow Rome and put Israel back on the map, literally, in a, um, in a political sense. But that's a far cry from what they got. As Bishop mentioned, they, they wanted a, a savior who was going to overturn the enemy. They wanted a Messiah who was going to lead them and a Lord who was going to be king. What they did get is a savior and a Messiah and a king. But it wasn't what they expected it to be. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 11, we have that triple appellation. We have those three names given to us there in the birth of Jesus Christ. And he's called Savior, he's called Messiah, and he's called Lord. And the, the Jews, as we already discussed, would have known exactly what they thought that meant. But what it really was was something drastically different. He was and is Savior. But it's not the overthrowing of a political uh, group. It's not the overthrowing of an empire. It, it's not the, the freedom from some political organization that he comes to overthrow. It is oppression that he comes to overthrow. It is slavery that he comes to free. But it's slavery to sin. It's slavery under the power of the prince of the air. It's slavery under uh, Satan and his work in our world today. And so when he came as Savior... And as he continues today to be Savior, it's not what they expected, but it's exactly what they needed. Second, it says he is Messiah. Messiah. And they expected that to be the Messiah of old, the picture that they had of the Messiah who would triumphantly lead them into battle. But even the very meaning of it, God's anointed, the servant of God, tells us something very different. In Jesus' own essence, he came as one under authority. He came one who put himself subject to God. Jesus came as one who was doing everything. He said many times in his ministry, he said, I can't say or do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say or to do. I'm here completely under the authority of someone else. That's not the picture of Messiah they were expecting. But it's exactly the picture of Messiah that they truly needed. Jesus came as one under subjection to teach others how to live under subjection to God, just as he himself was. And the third word, Lord. If there was a word that the ancient Jews could have rallied around, it would have been Lord, Master, the King over all, all-powerful, all-encompassing. And while it's true that God certainly places Jesus in that role, it says that every knee will bow. On earth and heaven and earth below, every, every, every knee, everybody that's ever existed will name him as Lord. But it had nothing to do with a crown on the physical throne. It had nothing to do with an empire. It had nothing to do with a political nation. The Savior that he is frees us from our oppression, but not the oppression they expected, but the oppression that they needed freedom from. Messiah reminds us that he was under authority and gives us an example for us to live under authority. And Lord reminds us that he is Lord over all, above all, and continues to be. There will be a day someday, it says, that all things will be put at Jesus' feet. And Jesus will then all things give to the Father. And the picture of subjection is one of subjection to God not subjection to political power. As we talked about this week, the, the thing that just kept coming back over and over and over was, this, as much as anything, is a misunderstanding of the ancient Jews' part of who God really is. 
of who God really is and what his purpose really is. And we see that when we look at the Messiah, Savior, and Lord of Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Yeah, so uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Probably should have. I didn't know we were going here. Flying off the cuff. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about how we, every time we approach the old law, every time we approach the Torah, we read it as if we are veiled, Mm -hmm. even today. Even today when we read about God in the Old Testament, we're seeing him through the clouds. We're not seeing him for who he truly is because he's truly revealed only in the person of Jesus. One thing I find fascinating is that, like you said, the expectation of God varied so much from their initial uh, Egyptian exodus up until Jesus was born in a manger. And the entire time it was dynamically different, changing every couple hundred years until we get to Jesus in a manger. And that shocked everybody there was, the Jews were divided into five sects of Judaism who viewed God five different ways and none of them expected a crying baby in a pig trough. And I think that's kind of the beauty of what it means to be subjected. One thing that's interesting is Jews were so preoccupied with physical power, freedom, right to rule, and God didn't care. God, doesn't, God understands that this world is temporary and its forms are temporary. What we need is a Savior, Lord, and Messiah who will free us from what we actually need to be freed from, and give us Galatians 5.1, which says, you are free. Never again allow yourself to be yoked in slavery. Not talking about political, not talking about anything, talking about sin. In fact, many times, Paul telling people, go back into slavery, like Onesimus, and show the love of God through your subjection mm-hmm. and through your willingness to sacrifice mm-hmm. for others. Lead us to point two. Oh, righty, Ru. Just throw that down yeah. anywhere. I'm going to forget that, too, every week. Uh, the second S is sanctify. Now, sanctification is the idea of being set apart from the law. This, the entire point of the Torah was to sanctify the people, to set them apart. There was the Jews, the righteous and the holy, and then there was the Gentiles, the scum of the earth, and everyone else. And that's kind of how they viewed it. It was self-righteousness for the sake of self-righteousness. And they expected the Messiah to come and finalize their sanctification. Because even they understood that they weren't truly all that set apart. Sure, they didn't eat things that Gentile nations ate. Sure, they didn't wear polyester or eat hooved animals or any of that stuff. But that wasn't exactly what God had in mind. He wanted sanctified more than by following the letter of the law. But sanctification of the heart being set apart from something else. Now, the Jews didn't get it. And so they offered prophecy after prophecy, promise after promise, saying songs about how God was going to come and sanctify them. But notice how he says they're going to be sanctified. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 21. Didn't think you'd go to Obadiah on a sermon about Jesus' birth. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 21 says, The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to rule, and the kingdom of the Lord will be the Lord's and the Lord's alone. Where are they going? They're going up and away from everyone else to a mountain far off where they can rule and be set apart, changed. For this reason, the Lord said, I'm ready to show you mercy. For I sit on my throne and I'm ready to share with you compassion. Indeed, the Lord is just. All who wait for him in faith will be blessed. For the people will soon live where? On Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem, you will weep no more when you hear your cry of despairs. God will show you mercy, and when he does hear them, he will respond. 
Time and time again, this idea of sanctification, that God is going to come and take the righteous, the good, the elite, and the wonderful, and he's going to take us far away from the dirtiness of everyone else, and we're going to sit on our mountain high up, be sanctified, set apart, looking down on the rest of the world, who isn't as good or righteous as us. The arrogance of the Jews, and especially in the time of the first century, is great. In fact, God says, I loathe the arrogance of my people. And so I will defeat your citadels and deliver you up to teach humility. Amos chapter 6, verse 8. God was waiting for a people who were ready to be truly sanctified. What the people wanted was an escape to a place where they could eat, dress, and do all the righteous things and be better than everyone else. So they wanted a Messiah to come to take them to Mount Zion where they will be sanctified. You know, the... The picture there of up and away, up and away is something, which just by the way, as, as, as a side, um, Obadiah, I was surprised by Amos, I absolutely knew you were going to go there, and I'm just surprised at some point there's not a Zephaniah that popped up in your, in your talk, um, which it's short, you may still get there, you may still get there. The, um, the reality is this whole idea of up and away, and that really this, this, this separation, and, and he described it very well, sanctification, being separated from. And, and, and it, it was something that permeated so much of their life. I think it's hard for us to really understand how every day this, this idea was. They had these tongs in the, in the temple, and those tongs were used to take coals out of the, the incense fire. And, and those tongs were sanctified. They were set aside for God's use and could not be used for anything else. You couldn't use them that morning for the, temp- the, the, the fire at the temple and then that afternoon behind the priest's quarters flip your stakes with them. They were used for God and nothing else. And the priesthood was like that. The people were like that. It was all about separation from. It was all about separation from. Up and away. Up on the mountain. Away from all the other people. God blew their mind because he came down and gathered together what they thought was going to be us separated up and away. That idea of sanctification, he turned on its head. He turned on its head the idea that that there's a separateness. It's not about separateness, that the the Jewish people will be selectively and uniquely separated apart for God's will, but that all people will be brought together. And while the imagery of Mount Zion is a beautiful image for New Testament as well, it's an image of uniting all people, not simply the Jewish people. And there's elements of this that show up even at the very earliest moments of Christ's life here on the earth, in his birth. Again, in Luke chapter 2, you've got this passage that in the midst of it, it says, born for you. Born for you. Well, to the Jewish mentality of sanctification, separation, it's just for us and not for you. Jews are good, Gentiles are bad. It would have been very easy for them to say, I know who the you is. I know who the you is. But you know, the question really comes, who is the you? If, it's, if Christ is born for you, who is the you? And we spent a lot of time this week talking about it. So let's just go back in that story for just a moment and unpack that little bit of it. it the, 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 the angels appear to the shepherds. The shepherds are out there in the fields with their sheep. And it says in that, pair, in that sentence, in that line with the angels, he is born for you. Who is he talking to? Well, immediately, the immediate audience is the shepherds. They're right there. But in that context, he talks about the city of David, Bethlehem. And so, yes, the immediate audience is the shepherds. But then there's that inferred audience. Well, we're talking about Bethlehem. 
But, you know, you can't talk about Bethlehem, a city of Israel, without talking about Israel. It's kind of a, a metonymy. It kind of stands in the place of. And so, generally speaking, the Jews would say, well, see, he's coming for the Messiah. The Messiah is coming for the people of Jews, the Israel, Israelite people. But that's where things fall apart, because that's not where this story ends. Because the other characters that are introduced to us in this story are the Magi who were not Jews. These are people who were Gentiles. These are people who were not of the right family, of the right race, of the right nationality. And that you now in this story is expanded to mean universally all people. All people. Christ is born for all people. And so this idea of sanctification is not simply that God's coming down for the select nation of Israel, the Jewish people. But he's coming to bring all people into his nation, sanctified for his purpose. In the Old Testament, this idea of a priest being a special person for God. In the New Testament, we read over and over that we are a priesthood of saints. We are all saints. We are all set apart. And it's not because of our race. It's not because of our nationality. It's not because of our lineage to Abraham. It's because of those simple three words that mean everything. Born to you. As long as we know who the you really is. So, in Zeph- ironically, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10. Showing off. From off, beyond man. the rivers of Ethiopia, those who pray to me, my dispersed people, will bring me tribute. Uh, this was something that was prophesied about, which ironically, there are these moments littered throughout the Old Testament where God's saying, hey, Jews, your arrogance and pride are wrong. I'm trying to save everyone and set everyone apart. That's my objective. That's my end game. And so he brings these moments along where he shines even through the clouds who he actually is and what his purpose actually is. And if we're tuned into it, and if we're looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, right, Graydon, cross glasses? He's actually been trying to Google cross glasses and buy them that have, like, glasses, because we talk about it all the time in class, reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, we'll find these moments, these, these glimpses through the clouds, if you will, light through the veil. And we'll begin to see that God's ultimate mission was sanctification for all. That Obadiah 1 passage that we read just a moment ago is fascinating, because though the Israelites took it as they are going to be uh, sanctified alone on Mount Zion, Obadiah 1 seemingly indicates that everyone will come and rule, but notice where? On the Mount of Esau. Gentile map, their key point, the kingdom of Zion and Esau together in one. That was always God's objective. We could see it now in retrospect. They couldn't see it then. Mm -hmm. But as an aside, I want to bring it to a so what. This is also unscripted, so buckle up. Um, This is kind of stressful. Um, I want us to ask a very real question. How does this relate to us today? The sanctification that we are pursuing I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we reflect more of the Jews than the purpose of the Messiah. I think a lot of times we get lost in the wrong form of sanctification. Set apart as a tool of love and acceptance and guidance to bring people to Christ is what we are supposed to be sanctified for. But instead, we often fall into the mindset of the Jews, wanting to be holy and righteous for the sake of holy and righteous. Morally right for the sake of morally righteousness, not for the sake of God. It's about what I am how good I can be, and setting myself apart from the world, not to save the world, but to judge it Mm -hmm. and rise above it. I think we have to be careful as we go through this that we repeat history so frequently, and though we are not Jews anymore, and we're not a part of Israel, 
or however you say it, um, that we are a part of a kingdom of God that is supposed to be different. And oftentimes Israel and the church look far too similar. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind when you say that is that I, 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 it feeds in nicely to our next point. Um, but, but the question becomes a matter of where is sanctification? Is it the Jews had an emphasis on what you were being sanctified from and Christ came with an emphasis on to whom we are sanctified. We are set aside for his purpose, and that's the focus. To the Jew, it became much more a matter of sanctified away from, separation from. And, and that led inevitably to shame. Before we jump into shame, I have one more last thought on sanctification. Mm. I know. Sorry. I have an eye on the clock, man. Um, I think it's important that we also understand this idea of sanctification, too, that they were all excited to get up and away from the world. That was the emphasis on sanctification of Judaism, up and away to Mount Zion, away from the world, yada, yada, mm -hmm. the world stinks. Um, by the way, how many songs do we sing where it's like, I am so ready to get away from this mortal coil and to go up and away, up and away, up and away, up and away. And our emphasis as Christians can so frequently be to go up and away that we miss the point that Jesus came down and around, mm. down and to. And I think we as people need to remember that our objective as Christians is the kingdom of God living now, not the kingdom of God that's going to be someday. Yep. We're not supposed to go up and away, but to be in the middle of it all right now and change the world right now. Shame. I'm moving on. More that, to be said. That was a good point. No, I'm glad More to be up. said, but we'll move on. Shame. The Bible is, uh, especially the Jews, the Torah, was all about shame. In the very beginning of the covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 6, God offers a series of covenantal promises. If you do this, you'll be blessed with this, 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 this. But if you don't do this, then you will be, and the word used is, chained by the ground. Literally, the earth will spit you out, and you will no longer have this home I gave you. Well, what happened is, if you remember the story of Israel, is in fact, they went into exile multiple times because they consistently were, quote, Shameful. Shameful meaning they did not follow the Torah. Shameful meaning they had sin. Shameful meaning they kept turning away from God. The Messiah was going to come and review the shame. In Zephaniah chapter 3, this is a double, um, verse 11, In that day you will not be ashamed of all your rebelliousness, rebelliousness against me. For at that time I will remove from your midst those who proudly boast, and never again will you be arrogant. I will leave instead a humble and meek people, and they will find safety in the Messiah or the Lord's presence. As for those who grieve because they cannot attend festivals, I took them away. They became tribute and a source of shame. Look, I will deal with those who mistreated you, yes, and I will rescue the land, but I will take away your humiliation too and make the whole world admire and respect you. Zephaniah chapter 3, a compilation of verses 10 through 19. Beautiful passage, all about how the Messiah is going to come and they're going to remove the shame of the people. Shame culture, by the way, that is the definition of fabric of society in, in this time. The idea of shame and honor. You are honorable or you are shamed. People were willing to die rather than be shamed. That's actually one of the cruxes of the Roman army was honor over shame. Honor, 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 honor was everything. How you were viewed as matters. How, how you were respected matters. What you were able to accomplish matters. And time and time again, the Messiah is represented with the term honor. In fact, that's the second most frequent title given to the Messiah. A man of honor. 
the Messiah was going to come and bring honor. So much so that the shame culture exists that the biggest prophecy of Jesus' birth, Isaiah 7, verse 14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him God with us, Emmanuel. This is a prophecy about shame. Doesn't look like it. But they believed that the promises and the curse of breaking the covenant of God was so bad that it went generation to generation to generation to generation. Meaning, your kid was born shameful because of your shame. So God, Isaiah here, through uh, talking for God, says that I'm going to have to bring the Messiah in through a virgin. So they don't have the shame of us. The Messiah was going to be born outside of Israel's shame and eradicate it once and for all. Which again, there's this picture there of what they were expecting. A picture of what they were expecting. So much of this Old Testament prophecy, so much of what Bishop is describing for us here, is a picture of a coming Messiah who's going to come and sponge the shame from the, from the nation by removing the shameful people. That he's going to come as this fearsome warrior, that he's going to come with his flashing sword, and he's going to eradicate the shame of the people by eradicating the shameful people. What a great irony. Even in their own prophecy, when they knew that it was going to, he was going to be born of a virgin, they didn't stop to think about what that entailed. Because there is very little in that culture that was more shameful than being pregnant outside of marriage. Now, how else can you have a situation where you're going to have someone born of a virgin? You're either going to be married or you're going to be single. But either way, there's going to be a a situation there that is perceived as shameful. How incredibly interesting that in their very misunderstanding of Jesus coming to remove shame, he would come in the most shameful form that they could figure. The figure of a teenage girl who shows up pregnant on wet. And into that shame, not there to eradicate it, not there to, to, to ostracize, not there to, to, to punish and beat up, but to embrace it, to join into it, and to be ridiculed with that shame. You know Jesus had to carry that with him for the rest of his life. You know the rumors were always there with him. And when Jesus came into that shame, he bore that shame. Mary set a pattern for him. She taught him in her actions, and in doing so, teaches us how to receive that, how to receive that love from God. When, when Mary was given this mission, when Mary was given this task, in Luke chapter 2, verse 38, the angel comes and the angel says, you're going to have this child. And she says, how is this even possible? This can't happen. Uh, I know enough about biology to know that this isn't going to happen. And he explains the process, explains what's going to happen. She immediately understood the amount of shame that she was going to be subjected to. She understood how incredibly ostracizing, how she was going to be rejected by everyone that she knew. And yet, what did she say? I'll quote, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. You see, the world said, Christ is going to come and remove shame by removing the shameful. And instead, Christ came and stepped into the shame. And Mary teaches us how to deal with that shame. Because she put her focus on the Lord's will rather than the shame that she was having to deal with. I think in some ways that's a a really interesting parallel to something we see her son do some three decades later. Some 30 plus years later, he may very well have remembered the way his mother dealt with that shame. 
because he too would be subjected to an enormously shameful situation. In the ancient world, there was nothing more shameful than to be crucified. It's dehumanizing. To be stripped naked in public, to be beaten within inches of your life, and then to be nailed to a tree to slowly expire with everyone jeering you. The most shameful situation that could possibly be contrived. And it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who set before him the joy of enduring the cross, listen, despising the shame. Despising the shame. That translation, despising, it's not the greatest. You could help us out with the Greek in another time and place, but that word there really means, we think of despise as something that you, you hate, but that word really means to pay no attention to, to remain unaffected by. It says here that Jesus, in the moment that he was enduring the most shame of his existence on this earth, he endured it, he worked past it, he paid no attention to it, because he was focused on the joy. He was focused on the mission. He was focused on the will of his Father. Mary, the mother, pushed past the shame ignored the shame, paid no attention to the shame because she was focused on the will of her Father. Jesus the Son ignored the shame, pushed past the shame because he was focused on the will of his Father. You see, the Messiah didn't come to eradicate the shameful. The Messiah came to be the shameful, to, to come and in, endure the shame with us and to teach us how to do so in a way that overcomes the challenges of living in it. Isaiah 53 says, I know I'm going Old Testament. I'm not supposed to go Old Testament. Just one verse. He was rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with guilt. There's a song we sing about that man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. What a name. You think about all the names that Jesus has. Think about all the ways we speak of Jesus. And Jesus is called man of sorrows. And we just think something about that is just not right. But you know, that's the enduring the shame. From the very moment that he was conceived in this earth, he was enduring the shame, pushing past it, not focusing on it, but instead keeping his eye on the mission. And he did that for us. He did that for us and teaches us how to do the same. Galatians Give us your chapter three. Um, I'll go New Testament since you went Old Testament. Oh, okay. one, Galatians chapter one three talks about how um, I don't have the verse in front of me. I'm sorry, uh, but, but it talks about how God became our curse that God became the curse we were, the shame we were, which is a fascinating concept, especially going off what you said, that they were expecting to get rid of the shameful. Instead, Jesus became the shameful, as you were saying. Mm. But what's even more incredible than that is that not only did he choose to embrace our shame, but he chose to take it from me. Mm. Um, there's very beautiful images that come to mind when I think of this idea. The most beautiful, I think, and I know this is a weird reference, so hang with me, is John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. A woman caught in the act of adultery, dragged naked into the streets, shamed, jeered, and pointed at and mocked. People grabbing stones ready to kill her, because that's what the Torah said. And Jesus walks in front of her. And he does two things that change the course of history. The first is he addresses her. He talks to her. Before he talks to the, the jokers in the audience, he addresses and humanizes the woman. The second thing he does is he shames the men. Turns it upside down. The shameful Jesus went into solidarity with, 
the righteous he avoided. Because the shameful understand where they've been and who they are. Mm -hmm. And they understand the mistakes that they've made. And they understand the need for a Messiah to take it away. And I think in, in our situation and in our context today, it's good to be righteous, don't misunderstand me, but not self-righteous. Remembering always that we all carried shame. We've all committed sin and made mistakes. But Jesus didn't just come and get rid of me, though I deserve to be get rid of. He came and he embraced every one of my mistakes. He grabbed them and he put them on himself. It is almost like in that moment, I am the naked person laying in the street and Jesus gives me his clothes so that he can stand naked in my place, being jeered and shamed by the world. That's the representation of the cross. My shame, my embarrassment, my weakness and my sin, he became. Not just embraced, not just entered into solidarity with, but became in that moment for me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a perfect spot to to wrap up a thought or two as we conclude. You know, in, in all three of these different S words. A better understanding of who God is is at the core of each one of these misunderstandings that the ancient people had. The Messiah that is, was, versus the Messiah they thought they were looking for. And I don't know where we are in that, but our thinking about God is going to determine the Messiah we're looking for. Who are you looking for? We know who they were looking for, and it wasn't what they got. But who am I looking for? Who, who are we looking for in a Messiah? Because I think that if we'll understand these three points a little bit better, we'll have a clearer picture of the Messiah that we really need and the Messiah whom Jesus really is. You see, Jesus came to subject us under him, but it was subjection to one who's not interested in political ramifications, but one who wants to free us from the real problem we all have, which is our sin. He came to sanctify, but it wasn't to take the good people away from the bad people. It was to bring all people in and help all people to be righteous so that all could be sanctified and used for him. And I got to tell you, I'm glad that I was one he invited to come and be a part of a family of which I have no business being a part. I'm glad that sanctification did not exclude me, but reached out lovingly for me. Because I fit that third one very well. And I know you do too. Because shame is an uh, undeniable aspect of who we are as human people. We continually fall victim to those sins that sully us and those things that bring shame into our life. And an understanding of a God who loves us so much that pursued us desperately to the extent of even sending his son to be born of a virgin to live a perfect life and to die a horrible sacrificial death for us should tell us a little bit about how serious he takes our shame. How desperately he wants to be sanctified and add us to his body. And how how clearly his love for us permeates every aspect of what he's done for us. So I don't know who the Messiah is that you're expecting to find when we go to the pages of Scripture. In this time of year when we celebrate the baby born in a manger, I don't know who you expect him to be. But I can tell you that Scripture tells us who He is. And Scripture tells us that He's exactly what we need. And that's really the beautiful message of not just Christmas, but of Jesus. That He is the Messiah that we need, whether or not He is the Messiah that we expected. 
you know, on that note, that shame is something that's real for all of us. That separation that needs to lead to sanctification is something that we all need to hear. To put ourselves under the authority of a loving God. And all of those things come together. When a person hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf, and submits their life to him. We see that portrayed in the beautiful act of baptism, that rising up out of water, a new cleansed creation for God, set apart for his holy purpose, added to his family. You know, that's why we're here. We're here to celebrate him. And we're here to add to the celebration all those who need to respond to the loving invitation that he still continues to put out there today. This morning, if you have any need in your life that we can help you with, we want you to know that we stand ready, literally, we stand right there in the back of this auditorium, ready to help in any way we can. We just ask that you make that known. We'd love to help you any way we can. Let's sing together. Please stand.